comes from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. If you have your Bibles with you today, if you could join me there. And also the, the text will be projected here behind me and on the screens in front of you. Let's read starting in verse 11, chapter 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You may be seated. As we go through the book of Galatians, we're having... Good morning, good news. As Pastor Ralph said, my name is Katie, and I'm here to share my story. Let me start by saying that I'm a Colorado girl. You may be wondering why I would leave such a state for the busyness that is Chicago, but if you've lived here any longer than a few months, you may understand why I left the gorgeous mountains, beautiful blue skies, and endless outdoor adventure for the tall buildings, the crazy weather, and a myriad of people. To give you a bigger picture of who I am and why I'm here, let's go back a few years to when I was born. I came into this world way too early on a Sunday morning in May, joining my 19-month-old sister and our young parents. As I grew, we moved out of a one-bedroom apartment and into my grandmother's house. I was surrounded by my family, aunts, uncles, grandparents, great-grandparents, we all lived in the same town. We went camping and fishing a lot, and I was able to help with my dad on several different projects on the weekends. My sister and I went to church with our grandma every Sunday. And this is the way it was, at least from the outside looking in. Being on the inside, however, was a slightly different story. My sister and I got along, but only on the good days, and those were few and far between. Needless to say, we got sent to our rooms a lot and heard quite a few words from Dad when he got home from work. When I started kindergarten, I was really excited to start something new because 
I loved learning and being creative. Everything was perfect about kindergarten, except one thing. I could not make myself speak. No grunts, no hums, no whispers. And this bothered my teacher. She did not like the fact that I would not speak. Up to that point, the only conversations I had was with my family. Not the mailman, not the grocery store clerks, and not even my friends. That year of kindergarten, my life changed. I was sent to the special education room for maybe an hour today, a day to receive special attention and learn sign language. That year was my first taste of being labeled different. This is how my school life was throughout elementary. The teachers thought I had autism because I was producing excellent schoolwork, but I just wouldn't speak. Instead, I would freeze, shut down, and more often than not cry because the pressure was too great. Throughout those years, my parents tried to bribe me to talk at school, but at some point they accepted that I wasn't going to speak at school from a mere bribe. They knew I would only overcome whatever was holding me back on my own. In the midst of all this, I prayed a prayer asking God to save me. I never did tell anyone. I'm pretty sure it was because of shyness and fear. But I also remember praying that prayer more than once, thinking that I didn't mean it the time before, and God wouldn't save me unless I meant it. Around the time I was in fourth or fifth grade, my teacher decided it was a good idea for me to receive counseling. So each day, the first thing I did when I got to school was go and listen to a tape by myself in a room. This then led to making a contract with the teacher, setting consequences if I did or did not meet a goal. One time, because I didn't follow my contract and start the Pledge of Allegiance, I received in-school suspension. It would take everything in me to break that frozen voice, but I just couldn't do it. Eventually, they said I had selective mutism, putting a label on what had become me. The day I spoke for the first time in public was my first day of sixth grade. It seemed I had achieved freedom, and life was good. My parents bought me a bike because I made them proud. It was probably the only thing I would have wanted, and it gave me an escape, a quick way to travel around town on my own. Not too long after I started sixth grade, I was diagnosed with petite mal seizures, another blow to my self-esteem and normalcy. My freedom slipped quickly through my fingers. Doctor visits, medication, and blood draws made me feel like I was a test subject. And when I couldn't figure out the cause of the seizures, my hope for finding a solution disappeared. <clears throat> they said I would outgrow them around the age of 13, but that didn't happen. And as my 16th birthday approached, I was told I wouldn't be able to drive because of the seizures and the medication. At this point, I began to seriously doubt God and began asking him why. Why me? And I began to cover up the pain, still attending church, serving in Awana, and going to youth group, all with a fake smile plastered on my face so no one could see the pain. When I was a junior in high school, my world came crashing down again. 
When after many months of fighting and years of bottled up pain, my mom told me she was leaving us and that she didn't love my dad anymore, but she loved somebody else. I screamed at her in a flood of tears and slammed the door in her face before she drove away. In my heart, I hated her. But I also didn't know what we were going to do without her. It was a wake-up call and an immediate growing up on my part. Cooking, cleaning, laundry, and basic housework fell on me. With my dad working and my sister refusing to help, there was no other option. In that time, though, I was blessed with a youth pastor and his wife, who cared enough to ask how I was doing. I had made church the excuse to stay away from home, and any excuse to be out of the house was a good enough excuse for me. Their simple act of taking the time to show that they cared started something in me that I had never seen before. They truly meant it. No masks, nothing stopping them from being real with me. They saw past my fake smile, and they were able to help me remove the mask that I was so proud of wearing. They gave me a newfound freedom and trust I hadn't yet experienced. They gave me an opportunity to see what it's like to truly walk with Jesus, and it was their intentionality in my life that gave me a passion for discipleship. Before I graduated high school, my parents got back together. Only by God's grace was my dad able to forgive my mom and welcome her back into the home. I saw a piece of God's forgiveness lived out on earth, and it has made me respect my dad all the more. While I was attending community college, my parents became foster parents. It had its ups and downs as well. Getting a placement in the wee hours of the night and being separated from countless children when they went back to their birth families. Some of the many foster brothers and sisters I had, I never had the chance to meet because I moved to Texas a few years into college for a ministry opportunity. I was there for about a year when I took a trip to Chicago as an intern for a youth group. That week-long trip was all it took for me to fall in love with the city and the people who call it home. Traveling back to Texas that July day in 2009, I felt as though a piece of my heart stayed behind, and I needed to come back. It took a little over a year of praying, fasting, and asking guidance, but I found myself on a northbound train out of Fort Worth in August of 2010. I came to Chicago without a clue as to what I would be doing but I knew that I had to be here. I heard about this place called Moody in September of that same year, and I was encouraged to apply. So I did, not really thinking I'd get in, but I had nothing to lose. My transcripts, initial payments, and references were all late. But as you well know, God doesn't have deadlines, and I made it. I was accepted without issue. I was assigned a PCM here at Good News, whether that was by God's race or Robert and Ruth Nathan's scheming, I'm not sure. But over the last four years, I've been blessed to be a part of your story and call you family. Life has been a long and frustrating road, filled with tears, questions, and heartache. And to this day, I still don't know what held me back from speaking as a child. And maybe I'll never know. But I've learned to see the blessings behind the seeming curses. I've been humbled by my God. And even today as I stand here, still living through the seizures that are extremely rare in adults, 
I'm drawn to tell my story. Because even through the days when I don't want to talk to anybody and feel discouraged, to the days where I cannot stop talking and have not a worry in the world, God has proven his faithfulness to me. I'm standing here today because he has carried me through. Even when I have failed and want to give up on myself, he is there, reminding me that he'll never give up on me. I have three adopted little brothers as living proof of his faithfulness, and I could not be a prouder sister. I graduated, even though it was difficult and stretching, from Moody, and I'm now a full-time employee there. The next chapter of my story is yet unknown to me, but I cannot wait to see where God takes me from here. Thank you. By being, we ask, Father, that your spirit might lead me and guide me, strengthen me, Father, in my innermost being. Father, you might give us as our congregation a heart to hear your word and to be obedient. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Most of you know that I grew up in Alabama. In the 60s, in the midst of the Civil Rights era, I remember seeing the violence on TV. It seems that we're two cultures living side by side and yet not interacting together. I don't think I knew any blacks my age. I knew the, the maids and the ladies who raised us, but I didn't know anyone. I see the movies where the maids would come in the, the back door of the white home, and that wasn't the case with us. Like they came in the front, and, and Sis and Margaret, who helped raise us, they were dear, dear friends. It doesn't take away the racism that was there. I remember my father being our county commissioner. He would meet with the black leaders on our front porch. I can just picture my father sitting in the swing on the front porch and the black men sitting with them. And to us today, that means nothing. But back then, in the 60s, in rural Alabama, I tell you, as a teenager, 16 or 17 years old, I felt a little awkward about that. Because that was not the norm. It wasn't what you would normally see. I was a junior in high school when our school was integrated. I remember seeing on TV the violence in St. Louis and other schools uh, around the, the South where there was uh, forced integration. And I remember thinking, what is going to happen to us? There's that fear of what was going to happen. Since I lived in a rural area, I caught a bus, a school bus, and actually had to ride about an hour each way. I never forget when our school bus stopped at the Harper home. And Deborah and Brenda and their little brother Darnell got on the bus. And I best remember they had reserved a couple of seats up front for their safety. I think this, 
first day, I remember Brenda and Deborah looking, turning around, and I could sense anxiety. I could sense fear. Three African Americans on a bus full of white people that they didn't know and knew that they didn't want them there. And to be honest with you, I didn't want to make eye contact. I happened to be sitting right behind them across the aisle. And so when Deborah turned around, I could see her eyes. Like I said, at first, I didn't respond. But I knew that she was a person. And I talked to her. Eventually, we became very good friends. She and her whole family. I remember if there was an empty seat by her, I would sit with her, or Brenda, and vice versa. I remember reaching out, though, and I remember reaching out in fear. In fear because I was afraid of the white ostracism. I was afraid of what people might say to me. When I say I was wondering, I I knew. I knew what they were thinking. I knew what they were saying. And just to confirm it, I had people come to me and say, Ralph, why are you you talking to Deborah and Brenda? You You and your family, you guys are in lovers. I knew what they were thinking. At times, I must be honest with you, I felt like giving in to culture. I felt like just ignoring them. Tremendous pressure. It was God's grace, though. Looking back, they say it's been very easy to give in to not make friends, to not be supportive. The pressure was great. I still remember all the questions that I had. All the questions were, am I wrong to do this? Whites weren't supposed to speak to these black students. They weren't supposed to become friends. Whites didn't go into black homes. But I, along with a few, We'll go into the Harper home and study. Eventually, three or four years down the line, I and one of the teachers from the school were the only whites at Deborah's wedding and reception. It was quite a time of challenge as two cultures come together. And it's kind of like oil and water. They didn't mix very well there. Looking back, things were not nearly as bad as I was afraid they might be. And I'll never, ever regret building those friendships with Deborah and Brenda, their little brother, Darnell, who was, as you guys know, I love rascals. And Darnell was a little rascal. I never regret it. And probably... Out of all the people going through school, in high school, they were probably end up being some of my best friends. Still keep in contact with them through Facebook. 
like all my friends from there, I've kind of lost contact with them. But today, as we continue the book of Galatians, we're in chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. We see a similar type situation, a, a different conflict, but, but similar in the sense that two cultures clashed. As Jewish Christians begin to meet with Gentile Christians, they didn't mix well. It was like blacks and whites. Jews looked down on the Gentiles. Of course, these two cultures living side by side in this clash, it wasn't just about political or about racial issues. This was much, much more than culture. The gospel of Jesus Christ was at stake in this clash. Picture, if you will, two of the most powerful apostles at that time in complete open in conflict with other believers observing. If you think about the book of Acts, the first half of the, of the book is the story of Peter. The second half is pretty much the story of Paul. Two men who had major influence on the body of Christ. This, I think, is no doubt one of the most intense and dramatic events in the New Testament. Paul's boldness to confront Peter shows the authority of God's word. And yes, it shows his authority as an apostle, but more so it shows the power of the gospel. After having stood together, as Aaron mentioned last week in Jerusalem, Peter with Paul and other apostles standing together for the for the gospel, for the truth, that we're saved through faith in Christ alone. Nothing more, nothing less. And then Paul confronts Peter in Antioch, a Gentile city. And verse 11 says that when Peter came to Antioch, that Paul said that he opposed him face to face. Because what he did was very wrong. As we look at Peter's conduct, what did he do that was so wrong to be confronted in front of everyone? Galatians 2.12 says that when Peter first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But later, when some friends of James came from Jerusalem, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. You see, Peter changed his eating habits. Peter changed his fellowship with the Gentile believers. He chose to kind of back away from those friendships. Peter's offense was his conduct, a contradiction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wasn't walking in line with the gospel. Of course, if you were to talk to a first century Jew, the fact that Peter, a Jew, would have even begun to eat with Gentiles in the first place would have been surprising. Remember the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Jews had the clean laws, regulations for Jews in order they might be acceptable before God to worship Him. Jews couldn't eat certain foods, if you remember. But then Peter had a vision, if you remember 
when the sheet came down with all these unclean animals. And he heard a voice saying, Kill and eat. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And then Peter met a Gentile named Cornelius, who received Christ, was born again. And after that, Peter said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the ones who fear him and who does what is right. No good Jew would defile himself by entering into a Gentile's home, but Peter started eating with the Gentiles, despite criticism. When Peter went to Jerusalem another time, the circumcised believers criticized him and saying, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? So if Peter had done this, what happened? What caused him to do what he did? Peter hadn't changed his convictions about salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He knew that the laws were Jewish customs. Paul writes that he was hypocritical. He feared social ostracism. He feared the Judaizers who insisted that all Gentiles should be circumcised and that Jewish believers should not eat with Gentiles. And was racial pride? Probably definitely ethnic pride? Nationalism, maybe? Could have been just fear, I guess. Tim Keller, in his commentary, writes, Were Peter and all the other Jews just afraid? Or were they still feeling some disdain for the Christians who were Gentiles? People who were from inferior races, ethnic groups, racial backgrounds. Was Peter allowing his cultural differences to become more important than gospel unity? Philip Lycan, president of Wheaton College, writes, To understand why Paul was so upset, it helps to understand a few things about eating habits. Eating is a cultural event. We know that at Good News. We know that. What we eat and whom we eat with says a lot about us. Well, Viking in his commentary writes that it was racial overtones that makes this situation ugly. He quotes the Cotton Patch Bible. Now, I'm sure that none of you have read the Cotton Patch Bible. It was a translation, a paraphrase rather, written back in the 70s in hopes of reaching blacks and whites. And, and so the stories take place in the South. He quotes a passage from that paraphrase. Before the committee arrived, Peter was eating with the blacks. But when they, the whites, came, he shrank back and segregated himself because he was afraid what the whites might say and do. I think this paraphrase definitely captures the tension that was there in Antioch. However, what was going on in the church involved far more than racism. And Paul knew it. Paul did not see 
Peter's behavior as just being rude or inhospitable. He knew that they weren't following the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was then that he confronted Paul, or rather Peter, in front of everybody. He said, since you, Peter, a Jew by birth, having discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you not trying to make these Gentiles into Jews? Think about it. Paul was looking at Peter, and he said, Bro, he said, you have given up this. You, you know you don't need to do this. Why are you a Jew trying to force on him something that you are not doing? Why are you trying to make him into a Jew? Well, Peter's sin could have just been fear. I can promise you that fear is powerful. It could have been nationalism. It could have been ethnic pride. Peter's sin is not so unlike some of us that we can have. We, too, can have ethnic pride. We, too, can have socioeconomic pride. We've all seen maybe wealthy believers who may look down on the working class. At the same time, I've seen working class people look with disdain on wealthy Christians. And like the Jews who back then just knew that they had a grip on the truth, sometimes we as evangelicals can look down on everybody else and say, we've got it. We've got the gospel right. There's no doubt that many from the South really have a distrust of you Yankees up here. And I know from experience, there's some up here who look down on Southerners. As we joke and interact within our groups, I hear the Puerto Ricans jokingly talking about how good our culture is. That good food. That good music. And they look over at those Mexicans and say, hmm, but I promise you, we can interact with the Mexicans and they'll say, hey, excellent, excellent food. You know, and it doesn't make any difference what ethnic group or race they are. These hipsters, these millennials who have seemed to take over Logan Square and Wicker Park, who do they think they are? We know this, this is the truth. Without the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're all unclean. We're all unclean. But with the gospel, with Christ, we're all clean. We're all clean. Satan so loves to divide. I think here at Good News that we can be very accepting of other cultures and other people. I think sometimes, maybe occasionally, there's someone we might have a hard time with, but I know we work at it. 
I think sometimes, though, maybe we want our culture to remain the main one. I think it's easy for us to take our own preferences a little bit too seriously and, and to, to give some moral significance to something that is cultural. For example, I know that those of us who are a little more emotional and love modern music can look down on those who have more of a classical type music and more reserved. But I know also that, and I've been in churches where they have beautiful concert bands who almost give a concert in, in worship. And I'm sure that they would say, we got it. It's easy for us to make cultural things more important than they are. And sometimes, sometimes we cannot see that we're just, we're different. And we believe that our styles and our customs are better. Well, what happened as a result of Peter's actions? You know, too often we, we believe the lies that our actions only affect us and no one else. But Paul knew that the actions of Peter were very important. And verse 13 says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. Their, honest, their dishonesty, rather, was like a flood that swept everything with it. Even Barnabas? Barnabas was one of those stalwart, strong believers. But this hypocrisy washed everything away. Paul knew this was important. If Paul had not taken a stand, the church, the entire church, were lost the purity of the gospel. Or there'd been a permanent division between the Gentile and the Jewish church. One Lord, two communion tables. Paul's courage in confronting Peter preserved the truth of the gospel and the unity of the church. He knew very well the gospel was at stake. You know, going back over times, era after era in the past, age after age, there's been that longing to know about how to be right with the Lord. The book of Job, which is an old, old, old book, records the words of Bildad the Shuite. And he said, How then can a man be righteous before God? And that's a question that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. How does a man be right? with God. Well, Paul's response was to declare after this situation that one is justified by faith and not by the keeping of the law. Verses 15 and 16, he says, he's talking to Peter, he says, Peter, you and I are Jews by birth, not sinners 
like the Gentiles, has been a little sarcastic there. He knew that all are sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because the works of the law by no one has been justified. He first counters the claims of justification by works of the law. I love the way the New Living Translation does verse 16. We know that a person is made right with God by faith in Christ alone, not by obeying the law. Two quick definitions as we hear the law and the works of the law. The law just simply includes the sum of all of God's commands. The ceremonial cleanliness, the, the moral things, and the works of the law just simply means being obedient to all those commands. The Jews and the Judaizers thought they could be justified by keeping the law. But one must keep and do everything that the law commands and refrain from everything that it forbids. I love how John Stott illustrated this. <clears throat> he says, you must keep the Ten Commandments. You must love and serve God and have no other gods before you. You must reverence his name and his day and honor your parents. You must avoid adultery and murder and theft and bear no false witness or covet anything. But he goes on, he says, but they still aren't finished. In addition to the moral law, you must be circumcised. You must fast and pray and give alms. If you do all these things and do not fall or fail in any particular, then you'll make the grade. God will accept you and you'll be justified by the works of the law. He goes on and he says, this is delusional. This is delusional because no one has ever been justified by the works of the law. It's a lie, a big lie from the father of lies, Satan. Christ reminds us, if you remember going back to the Sermon on the Mount, he reminds us that our murderous thoughts make us murderers. Our adulterous thoughts make us adulterers. Paul says, though, he says we're justified by faith, not by keeping the law. We keep hearing justification and justify. What does that mean? It's to be made right with God. is to be declared righteous by God and before God. To be acceptable for fellowship with God. It's a legal term. In court, one is either guilty or not guilty. God in his court has made us righteous because of faith in Christ. Well, Paul says that we're not made right by obeying the law, but by faith. And then he begins to argue for justification by faith. And Paul knew that these, these Judaizers and these Jews were going to challenge. He knew some of their protest against salvation through faith in Christ. In verses 17 and 18, he states their challenges, and then he answers them. Verse 17, 
But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we're found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean that Christ has led us into sin? See, Paul's critics had this idea that justification by faith without works was a very dangerous thing. And they attacked it in two or three ways here. They, they were saying that it weakens our sense of responsibility. It encourages us to sin. And then they asked the question, by this way, is Jesus, is he leading us into sin? I still remember when I came to Christ and I was sharing the gospel with my father. And I told him, you know, Dad, it's, 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 it's by faith. And God had changed my life from drugs and alcohol. And he had given me hope in the midst of, of, of the hard time. And I remember I wanted so much for my dad to come to Christ. And he looked at me and he said, Son, it sounds so good. But it's just too simple. He says, if that's the case, then people are going to keep on sinning. Of course, we know that there's far more than that. We know that when we come to Christ, that the Spirit of God comes and lives within us. And he empowers us. He changes our desires. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are new creations in Christ. We're radically and permanently changed when we truly come to Christ through faith in Him. Well, Paul's response to these supposed questions, he says, absolutely not. If I sin, I'm at fault. I have no one to blame except myself. I cannot blame Christ. Paul continues his argument in verse 19. This passage is really hard to understand, so I'm using the New Living Translation here. And Paul says, So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. When Paul tried to obey the law, he realized he simply could not. As he tried to live by the law and to keep the law, it's then when he realized what sin was. And he realized that he was unable. He realized he needed a Savior. Paul continues in verse 20 saying, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live through faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is a picture, if you will, of our death and burial and resurrection with Christ Jesus, our union with him. It's in a sense, as we live our life in Christ, that he lives through us. And then in a sense, because the Spirit lives in us, enables us. Since the Spirit lives within us again, He gives us new desires, desires for heaven and for God and for holiness. It's not that we can't sin. It's just that we don't want to, or when we want to, we struggle because we know the Spirit of God is 
telling us otherwise. Verse 20 is probably the best known verse in the book of Galatians. I think sometimes we, we, we take it out of the context of where it is. Um, this, it, it summarizes the gospel. It clarifies it. it. The thrust of this verse is not the need so much for sanctification. Yes, we need it, but the context here is he is again, he has given us the gospel. And the futility of trying to live righteously under the law, which we've died to. Well, after countering his critics' attempts to overcome the doctrine of justification, Paul summarizes his, his argument in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul reminds us that we have two choices. One, and they're each exclusive. One is we can live by faith in Christ and experience God's grace. Or we can strive for righteousness under the law and forsake grace. It's impossible to go with both. You choose one. We can't combine grace and merit. As we look at this powerful passage, there's so much I want to say. I want to say that our conduct and behavior can infer wrong theology. Peter had no idea that he was denying the gospel by his actions. He never changed his beliefs. Are we living out the true gospel? Are we in step with the word? We learn from this passage that our authority comes from God's Word. Too often over the years, I've, I've, I've had people come to me and elders, that people come to them saying, well, what are you elders going to do about this brother over here sinning? Or this sister over here sinning? Usually we don't know. You see, God's Word says that we, brothers and sisters in Christ, we're the ones to confront God calls us also to live beyond our own culture. It's so easy to be comfortable where we are. I still think of Jonah when God called him to go east and he went west. We'd be a people of principle and courage reaching out to sinners all around us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word.